It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. For nurses and doctors, their oath to do no harm is a guiding principle that shapes their daily care for the sick and helpless. After working at a nursing home and witnessing abuse at the hands of those who promised to care for patients in need, Amy Lochran took it upon herself to pursue a career in nursing. She became an ICU nurse at Somerset Medical Center in New Jersey, protecting and healing the sick and vulnerable. Not every day is a good one, but Amy knew she could always count on her friend and fellow nurse, Charles Cullen, for a laugh. One day, Amy was approached by detectives who were investigating a mysterious string of deaths at the hospital. What she didn't know was that the man behind the scrubs, her daily companion and colleague, was secretly one of America's most prolific serial killers. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Charles Cullen's nursing career spanned over 16 years and 10 hospitals and nursing homes. Cullen is confirmed to have murdered 29 patients throughout his employment, although many experts believe he is responsible for the deaths of hundreds more. Due to his access to medications, Cullen was able to secretly inject lethal doses of drugs such as insulin and digoxin into the IV bags of his patients. In 2003, investigators began to take a closer look at the suspicious deaths at the hospital, and they came to Amy for answers. Although the discovery of Cullen's actions was heartbreaking, Amy ultimately agreed to aid law enforcement in their investigation to protect the lives of countless more patients. On December 12, 2003, Cullen was arrested and would later plead guilty to killing 29 people. He is currently held at New Jersey State Prison, where he is serving 18 consecutive life sentences. Amy Lochran is now known to many as the good nurse. She joins me today to share the thrilling story of how she was able to bring down a killer and why she continues to help other healthcare workers. I ended up in nursing because I ran out of college money and I decided to work at a nursing home. And when I was at that nursing home, I witnessed abuse of one of the residents. And then I ended up turning that nurse in and my supervisor said that it was a personality conflict and would not protect the resident. So I decided to go to nursing school instead of becoming a psychologist, and I never looked back. It was definitely what I was supposed to do. It's my understanding, one of your prior quotes that you've shared with the media is that you've said, what I love about nursing is that I could protect the vulnerable, and I'm a badass nurse. And it sounds like you were put in place from minute one to do exactly that, to protect the vulnerable and to pursue this calling. It definitely was. And I really see that our role as a nurse, number one, is to protect. And that's how I see myself when I go into any situation. And it's to protect their dignity. It's to protect their health. It's also to protect their families. And that's our primary role. So tell me about in 2003... You were working in the ICU in the intensive care unit at Somerset Hospital in New Jersey, and you had friends there and you loved it, it's my understanding. Uh, Tell me about what it was like working there when it was all positive. 
Well, it was interesting because I was actually a trauma nurse, uh, travel nurse when I first started working there. And so I traveled Friday nights, uh, Friday day, I would travel down to work Friday night, and then I would stay in the hospital Friday or a Saturday night, actually Saturday day, because I worked night shift. So Saturday day and Sunday day, I would sleep in the hospital, and then I would go back home on Mondays. So it was only weekends that I was working there, and I traveled three and a half to four hours to get there every weekend. So I was kind of exhausted all the time, um, and because I really didn't sleep well in the hospital. But I had so many friends there and I made such intense connections and so many of those people are still friends. Um, one of them is still one of my very, very closest friends and we talk all the time. Yes. And working there, I really felt like it was it was really seen as having a role that I could be proud of, that ICU did have a lot of very sick patients and clinically we needed to be at the top of our game. And I just, I felt honored to be there. And I loved the physicians that I was working with. And I really felt like it was a team effort. I never felt like I was alone on the floor. So as you were balancing that exhaustion and your children at the time, did you see the scenario that was so supportive and positive? Did you see it then as temporary? Did you think that you it was sustainable or what was sort of your, your views well, on whether it had a, an ending to that chapter? Yeah, it was always considered temporary because of... The traveling that I did and my girls were very young. I was also going through a pretty intense health scare and I really knew in my heart of hearts that it was going to be until I was able to have my experimental procedure on my heart because I was diagnosed while I was working at Somerset Medical Center with cardiomyopathy. And during that time, I ended up having a pacemaker inserted. And I was also just very, very sick, waiting for my insurance essentially to kick in to the point where I could go to the Cleveland Clinic and have an experimental procedure. So you were an incredible warrior in all senses of the word at that time. How old I didn't were you? know I was. I didn't feel like one. <laughs> I think that's always how it works. <laughs> um, can you share how about uh, roughly how old you were at that time in 2003? Oh my goodness. So I was still in my 30s. I was a baby. So I am 58, almost 59 now. And this was 20, 21 years ago, longer than that. So I was 36, 37, 38. Yeah around there, I think. Yeah. So one of your friends at that time was a, a fellow nurse named Charles Cullen. Can you describe what was it like when you met him and describe the dynamic of the, the close friends that you've mentioned before? You, you have a best friend to this day, but describe what that was like doing this intense life-saving work on others. And you're also battling your own life-saving work on the side. And you are amongst some incredible uh, nurses as well, some incredible colleagues. Share what that was like. Charles Cullen, when he first started working there, it became very obvious how smart he was. And he was so patient and very shy, but he always laughed at my joke. So I knew he was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we just started having these um these back and forth little silly moments and he would be my go-to person because I respected his skills. I respected his clinical knowledge. He had so much knowledge of medications and back then we weren't Googling medications. We had to look them up in books like old school and he just knew so much off the top of his head. So he was a walking Google and I loved working with him. He was funny and kind and a um, little dark 
And I always thought perhaps he was a little bit depressed, but his humor was so self-deprecating that I really understood that he was also insightful about who he was. Yeah, that calls to mind in a lot of fields where you have to have command of a large, expansive body of specialized knowledge. Obviously, you get a ton of brilliant people. And with that also comes, yeah, complex personalities and people carrying different weight and people carrying that stress differently. Um, I think about grad schools and the like and, you know, picturing you in that environment. And so when you say he was a little dark and and maybe depressed, did he ever share um, either conceptually things going on in his life, familial things, or uh, just a, a sort of leaning into that in his own personality, the, the kind that is brooding or maybe always has that in a latent sense? Or what kind of things um, did he ever hint, if at all, about the origins of that? He never really did. I know that he was struggling in his relationship and it was not going well. He was also struggling to pay his child support and he had two young daughters like me. So we really bonded in that way. He appeared to be a really dedicated father, even though we never really had those opportunities outside of the hospital because I worked so much. So I wasn't really able to see what he was as a father and how he was acting as a father. I only heard the way that he talked about them and his face would always change to this very, very kind face every time that he was talking about them. And he also was struggling with the fact that he had been divorced and I could tell he was very lonely, although it was also very clear he didn't have any friends. But he had you guys. So would he say, you are my friends? Would he say, I'm, I'm grateful for this relationship? Were there expressions of, of uh, an acknowledgement of value in your relationships at work? Definitely. And there was another nurse, Donna. They called us the three musketeers, me and Charlie and Donna. And often he would say how grateful he was for our friendship and how happy he was working with us. And it was also quite evident the way that we worked together because we were able to use a lot of humor. We were able to really lift each other up. And when things were, when the shit was hitting the fan, we knew that we had each other's backs at all times. And having that type of relationship is imperative when you're working under such high pressure. When you talk about a walking Google, I totally know what you mean. And knowing people like that, I, I love those kind of people. I love brilliant people. I'm wondering, in the course of your duties there and, and the fact that he had such a command of, of medications, and was there ever a time that you can remember where maybe the three of you guys were discussing, you know, oh, I think it's this. Oh, no, it's this. Like somewhere so at some time did he intervene with, I promise this is the correct answer and this is what we have to do to save this person's life. Meaning, was there ever an intervention or a time that he had the answer and was certain and persuasive about it um, in order to save or help or aid a patient, bring them comfort in some way, a positive impact is my point. That's an interesting question. When I look back, what I do remember is his quiet power. He was very powerful in the fact that he wasn't the person that was trying to lead anything. Because he was so quiet, we would have to lean in pretty closely when he was talking, especially during a code. But it was very evident that he knew essentially which medications would work best. I also know that he directed us in ways that did harm patients. And although it seemed like he had the answers, what he was doing truly was to push along his own agenda, and that was to murder people. Last question before we dive into the fact that he was indeed and tragically a murderer. It is clear from talking with you for 20 seconds, from talking 
with you for two seconds, that your passion is caring for others, caring for the helpless, the vulnerable, protecting others. That was obvious from the first moment you talked about why you were in this field. And my question is, were there any passions you identified about Charles Cullen? Before all this happened, I mean, if someone came in and said, you're obviously passionate about this, what is he passionate about in this medical field? Charlie was passionate about certain types of medications, and he was passionate about coding people, being in a code blue, being in the thick of it, and not just being there to support, but being there knowing he was the quiet entity that was going to eventually save this person. He gave us the the impression that if he was there, we were all safe, that the patient was safe, we were safe, and all of the nurses were so happy to have him there because it was his passion. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So against that landscape, at that time, detectives were investigating mysterious deaths there at Somerset Hospital, and they approached you with what they knew. The detective, one of the main detectives, which was Danny Baldwin, says about you, Amy, that you came across as a strong-minded, intelligent individual. So I rolled the dice, he said, and revealed some of our findings to her. What did that conversation look like? That conversation was so tough and it's really hard to look back on because I think knowing that I was defending my friend Charlie when the detectives had shown up, it just, I, every time I think back on that, thinking that I wanted, I wanted to believe that he could never be who he was. And so my conversation with Danny originally was me protecting Charlie, who I saw as someone who needed to be protected. I saw him as the underdog. And so when I went up against this amazing detective who is a big dude, <laughs> I really went at, went at him and I said it was a witch hunt. And when he showed me the evidence, I really thought that I had been in one of those movies where your entire paradigm comes all the way into this tiny little pinpoint of light. And that's the only thing that you can see. And it was so obvious to me that there was something really sinister going on with Charlie and the way that he was pulling out medications. It was a printout that Danny had showed me, shown me, um, and it was a printout of all of Charlie's activities in a machine, a medication dispensing machine. And the other thing that I saw was that that sinister part of him was not trying to hide it. And it was so obvious, I could not understand why other people had not seen it. And why wasn't someone keeping track of what was happening with the medications? I would have to say that was the moment where everything just changed for me. And when you think about how your your friend, one of your best friends, is doing something that is so horrific and trying to understand why you still care about them, trying to understand. And that's what I was going through in that moment was I did not want to hurt him. And I'm 
And I feel sad for myself in that moment that I still wanted to believe that he was innocent. Oh, I don't feel sad for yourself for that. I think that's a hallmark of your character, that under it all, you're always looking to protect and you're always looking to find the best, that someone you love isn't capable of something so heinous. I think that shows your humanity and your generosity and your compassion. Um, I, If it was reversed, I couldn't imagine someone with the depth of your love for other humans being so quick to accept this reality as it's being introduced to you that is essentially turning your world upside down. Um, and the added complexity of humans is we love who we love and that's separate from a revulsion at behavior or realizing someone is a monster or behaving monstrously. Well put. Well put. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So in that conversation, may I ask, was that the first conversation? Because the detectives came in, you know, and technically they were investigating these abnormal lab reports after the deaths of several patients. Was it during one conversation when that that as you describe they they you started talking and then they produced the reports after they say you know recognizing your intelligence the special quality about you and then you realized this tunnel vision the medication dispensing like oh my gosh th- this is him and it is so clear this was in one conversation or a series so i refused to talk to the tech detectives for quite a while they had already been there and they they were meeting a lot of resistance from the hospital and every single person that went in there to talk to them, some hospital representative had to be in there with them. And so it was really sidelining the entire investigation because nobody really wanted to talk. And when I went in there, I wasn't afraid to talk. I wasn't afraid that I was going to, I, I, I wasn't afraid of them and I wasn't afraid of him. And I wasn't afraid to push back on what was happening. And during that time, my hospital representative had to leave the room. And I only know this now in hindsight that Danny had essentially said, this is our girl. If there's going to be anyone on the inside where we can actually get to Charles Cullen, she's the only one. This is the only, this is the only time I am going to be able to get her. So he saw that as his opportunity and he's brilliant. So he figured it out that I would be strong enough to be part of that investigation. And yes, it was the first conversation that we had, and he put his trust in me through his own instincts. And I'm so grateful that he did. I'm so grateful. When they came in to investigate, so against the the description you just gave of of a little bit of challenges with them uh, gaining access to everyone, et cetera, was it clear to you the purpose of their interviews with you and did everyone say yeah there there have been a lot of deaths or was it like look everyone's doing their job you know describe the the tenor of the deaths themselves amongst the staff and in relation to now we have law enforcement here are they trying to point fingers at us what's going on like what was that like so my understanding when they first came in was yes they were asking a lot of questions about charlie and if detectives show up the last thing that you're thinking is there's a murderer amongst us. What I was thinking is someone must have stolen some narcotics or something. Like that's the only thing I could imagine why the police were there. Uh, Someone stole something. And so in my mind, it was very much about maybe Charlie had been accused of doing something that I knew he wouldn't do. And then I had heard that one of the patients that had died, uh, they were looking into his, uh, his passing as very suspicious. And that's why they were looking at Charlie. I had no concept of the scope of what they were looking at at that time. I mean, they had already exhumed a body, so they were already in the midst of 
this investigation that the hospital was trying very hard to stop because it's all about money and they did not want to be held liable. How does that part, what do you feel about that? I still have a lot of anger that I'm working on through that to know that he, at least they knew that he was dirty in five hospitals, five of them. Five of them had passed him on to the next hospital. Five. Five out of the nine places that he worked passed him on to the next institution, knowing that he had either harmed a patient or was was stealing medications to harm a patient. And to know that then he ends up at Somerset Medical Center and their first instinct is not, how are we going to protect the patients? Their first instinct was, how can we get the detectives off this case so that we're not liable? They even knew that Charlie had been murdering people and they left him on the floor. They knew he was harming patients and they let him work over and over again. And from my understanding, from the time that they knew he was murdering people to the time they fired him, he murdered between six and eight more patients. So my anger and the concept of knowing that they helped a serial killer murder people and they are not being held accountable. In fact, my representative was... She was given a promotion after everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to stomach. First, first, first of all, it's a, it's a pattern that we've unfortunately seen in a lot of molecules that exist out there, sort of organized or otherwise, um, organized churches, organized schools. You know, the, the list goes on where you learn of this kind of pattern where the organism wants to protect itself and therefore will absorb the bad seed to do so. And what is unfathomable to me, you know, there's, there's the negligence of how did you not see this, but to learn of actually knowing and then to have deaths on, on the hands of those who chose to protect, you know, or secure. It's just, it's just so deeply disheartening. It's so deeply unjust um, to know that those deaths were truly preventable, truly preventable. And I, you know, I often wonder what those meetings were like. We know that this person is harming patients. If someone had said that to me, I would have done everything, everything, including giving up my own position at the hospital to make sure that we were protecting those patients. How did those conversations not happen? How was it that, how are we going to protect the money instead of protecting the patients? It, it's, it's mind boggling. I, I can't even imagine thinking that a job is worth assisting a serial killer. So at this point in the story, chronologically, you share that sort of the, the detectives proffered you assisting further with the investigation of, of being able to nab charlie and you've mentioned um that you know you knew you wanted to help stop him for exactly that reason before he could hurt anyone more um and you've shared that but before you could begin um you wanted to check with your oldest daughter you share about why and what that looked like my oldest daughter she was the shy girl she she was always the shy girl And I was also directing her school play. And with that directing of her school play, all of her schoolmates were at our house all the time. She had friends. And not that she didn't have friends before, but it was, she was kind of a cool girl all of a sudden, which all of us, especially at that age in sixth grade, everyone kind of wants to be the cool kid. And she was. And so I wanted her to understand the magnitude of what I was about to do. 
I already knew that Charlie had been followed by newspapers and media outlets, and they were watching him. So when I was asked to be a part of this investigation, I would have to go and meet with him. It was very possible that maybe somebody would take my picture. And I was really concerned because we lived in a very small town. If someone misunderstood that I was with him just to be a friend or perhaps collaborating with him that a lot of things could happen. One of them, I wouldn't be able to direct the school play. I wouldn't be able to tell anyone what I was actually doing and they could misconstrue it as I was a criminal. And that meant worst case scenario, we would have to move. And so I told her everything that possibly could happen if I helped with this investigation. And she said, mom, he's harming people. He's hurting patients. He's killing people. Of course we have to do this. Of course we have to do this. She was 11. She had much deeper of a moral compass than the people in the hospital, the bureaucrats that were trying to hold on to their money. She could have definitely lost her social status, which at 11 years old, that is pretty much the only thing that you were worried about. And she would have lost that and it didn't matter to her. It did not matter. She wanted me to be a part of this. Sounds like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'm just picturing her as this like small, precocious, brilliant, truly correct, morally compassed individual, just like her mama. Um, so she gave you her blessing and you then began working closely with that team. So for those of us who, you know, we, we watch all the movies and we watch all the shows and, you know, it's, it sounds exciting. It sounds fascinating. It it sounds, you know, complicated and cool and all of these things. What did it feel like in person? I would think that given the depths of your feelings that you've described earlier, maybe it was none of those things and maybe it was. Yeah. A burden that was, in a way was like honorable to bear, but a burden nonetheless. There was nothing exciting about it. It was really scary. And I remember shaking the very first time that I had to record um, our conversations on the telephone. And it was one of those old school telephones, the rotary phones with the huge gosh, I can't even think of the word of it, that, you know, you're holding on to this big ass phone <laughs> and I put it up to my head and I was shaking so badly that I was smacking myself in the head with it. Oh. So I had to have someone actually hold the phone next to my head because I was just so nervous. Can I ask and, you what, what, when you said you were scared, you're nervous, like what exactly about what, what for, were you scared of being found out? Were you scared of, of seeing the, like, what, what were you afraid of in that moment? I had so many things going through my head. One of them was, what if I was wrong? What if I was seeing things that were wrong? Maybe I was just jumping to conclusions. Um, What if I messed up the investigation and we lose him and he ends up in another hospital? And also, what if He's murdering people outside of the hospital as well. That means that I'm in danger and my daughters are in danger. And that was probably the biggest thought is I would lose this case for the detectives. All of the work that they had been doing and here it was on my shoulders to make sure that we had the smoking gun. They definitely already had quite a bit of evidence, but that also meant long trials and there without a confession, that trial could end up in his release. So those were the things that were on my mind. I was I had the weight of the world and also I was very sick. And knowing the level of stress that I was going through, was this going to kill me? Mm-hmm. And That was definitely a thought. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. So 
What information, if any, did you glean from that first conversation, from that call? That first conversation was that he was lonely. He wanted to talk to me. He wanted to experience things with me. He wanted to still have a connection with me. And mostly what I realized is he wanted to be honest with me. And he was telling me about things that had happened in his life during those conversations that I definitely didn't know. Um, Things like he was arrested for breaking into an ex-girlfriend's home. He told me things like that he had grown up with a lot of people in the house and he always felt lonely. Um, things that he did not tell me while we were working together. And I wasn't getting information that he had harmed people. What I was getting information more was that he was deeply, deeply depressed, disturbed, and probably traumatized. And those conversations weren't just to get information out of him, they were also to remind him that we were friends and that I did care about him. How did you guys make that call in the first place? Like, would you, would you talk on the phone regularly or were you, did you text, you know, or I guess it was, yeah, 2003, there was, te- <laughs> really I can't even that. remember. I don't, I'm like, I don't even I know. know. <laughs> but well, um, know. how did, how did, was, was you guys connecting at all over, like just in general on the phone, was that typical or as you just described, was it like, Hey, I want to talk to you or you were like, I'm here for you type thing. So our original conversation before the detective showed up, I was the only person to get in touch with him. He had been arrested. No, he had been fired. And then he was escorted by security off the premises. When I came to work uh, the following day, I believe it was the following day, I didn't have his phone number because we hadn't talked before on the phone just at work. And so I got his phone number at work and I called him while I was at work and we had a long conversation about what had occurred. So that was also one of the reasons why the detectives thought that I would be an asset to the investigation Um, because I had already talked to him. I had already continued this relationship with him. So when we were recording these series of phone calls, I needed to be taken to this secret place with the detectives riding in the back of, you know, the undercover cop car. And we went to this, this big warehouse in the middle of New Jersey, which, you know, I mean, just that is a little sus. (laughs) And it was this warehouse where they did all of their wiretapping and whatever it was. And I'm sure I'm not saying the right word for it, but it was it was overwhelming. And it was all the techies that would, you know, put wires on people to wire uh, themselves so that they could record conversations. And yeah, it was it was the techie world that was behind the scenes of what detectives do. And at what point then can you describe agreeing to wear a wire and meet Charlie at a restaurant? How did that evolve? Charlie called me when I was at home or I, I called him. I don't remember. I probably called him. And this was not a recorded conversation. This was just a conversation. I wanted to call him and just see what he was doing for the week. And he told me that he had gotten a job. I was panicked and I called Tim Braun, uh, the other detective and told him, I, I don't know what to do. He has a job. So they decided to move up the investigation and they asked me to wear a wire and see if I could go in, not only get information from him, they were hoping to actually get a confession out of him. And they really believed in me that I could do that. And talk about being scared. I was 
really, really terrified of doing this again, same weighty things by that time. I knew it was real. I had seen enough of the evidence. I knew that Charlie was murdering people. I knew it, but I was still betraying a friend. And that was really, really hard for me that I was going to have to lie. And I didn't want to do that. And when they did ask me to do it, there was a part of me that just said, we need to get him no matter what. And if it means wearing a wire and it means being scared out of my mind, I can do this. I'm going to do this. So share then what happened at the restaurant with your friend, Charlie. One of the, one of the scary things is that I had a little black box that was strapped to my lower back. Charlie and I had never had any physical contact before. And when he walked into the restaurant, it just seemed natural for us to hug. And I was (laughs) I thought I was going to vomit because I was thinking he's going to hug me and feel that box on the small of my back. And all of this is over. Everything is done. I will mess up this entire investigation. And luckily he did not. But we sat and we talked and we talked for a long time. We had a couple of beers and He also brought with him five different articles that had mentioned him in newspapers, and he wanted me to read them. Were they cutouts from the newspaper or were they printouts? Cutouts from the newspapers Mm -hmm. and some of them, the whole newspaper to show me that he essentially at that time was famous, infamous, and he was proud. And... I'm glad that he did that because it was a segue into a conversation of, I I said to him, I've been in nursing for 16 years and I've never been in a situation where someone accuses me of doing something sinister. And here you're, you're saying that five times you've been fired or pushed out of positions because they thought that you were harming patients. So I really feel, and I know, I know, Charlie, that this is true and that I want us to go in to the police station. I want us to go together and I'll stay with you and we can do this now. Let's do this together now. And he changed. He was no longer my friend, Charlie. He sat up straight, his eye color changed, his pupils dilated, he became very hard and his voice changed, the cadence of his voice changed. And he just said to me, I'm going down fighting. I want to go down fighting. And essentially told me that it was true. I had gotten a confession out of him, at least something that we could use in court. And unfortunately, the wires malfunctioned. So it was never recorded. Never so. recorded, but the the law enforcement, they were hearing it also, right? They they were They were witness to his live statements in real time, correct? No, they couldn't hear it. Nope. So what they did hear was a lot of muffling later on. Uh, I had another like cassette type of recorder in my pocket and they were able to clean that up and they could hear him. Um, I have never heard the recordings. Charles Graber, who wrote The Good Nurse, he has apparently heard the recordings and they were able to get some of that from those recordings, but the detectives weren't able to hear it. Prior to him, as you said, essentially confessing or fully confessing, um, and you were describing his pride at being infamous and whatnot, um, 
what was he maintaining during that phase? Was he saying, I can't believe they're accusing me of this, but I'm famous, you know, i.e., did he maintain an innocence while reveling in the infamy? Or was it obvious that he wasn't even trying to hide it even before you told him that you knew? There, he never said he didn't do it. There, there was never a time that we had those conversations of me saying, so did you do it? I never asked. It wasn't something, I, I didn't feel that it was going to be efficient for us to go down that road of him believing that I suspected him. I needed to have a relationship with him of support, and that's all that I did. He has has not denied anything, and he wasn't denying it then. He wasn't denying that he murdered people. He just wouldn't say the words. Before you said what you said, had you rehearsed or thought of how you would say it, or did he, did it come out an organic, natural, spontaneous statement on your part? I think the way that our relationship was, if I had tried to re- rehearse something, he would have felt that immediately. And I curse a lot. I am <laughs> I'm a true trauma nurse at heart. <laughs> and the way that I spoke to him was the way that I spoke to him. I didn't change anything. And I didn't want a rehearsal. I, I believed in myself enough to know that we could just have a conversation and that there would be a natural place where I could move into those types of conversations. Um, I did trust myself in that and the detectives trusted me as well. And talk about feeling grateful. I'm so grateful that they put their trust in me and their confidence in me. He was arrested. He was brought to the police station um, where it's my understanding that you convinced him to start talking, right? Because you had encouraged him to do so. And after that, after that confession, he was convicted of 29 murders and was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences in 2006. Some experts, though, estimate that he could be responsible for as many as 400 or more murders based on suspicious circumstances in the deaths of patients at hospitals where he worked, which, as you said, you described being passed you know, th- across the system, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that, I, you know, I often think about what he admitted to and again, how brilliant he is. He, he has never admitted to murder. He has admitted to injecting. He has admitted to possibly harming. The people he confessed to are the people he knew what their names were, and he knew that the things that he did directly led to their death. He doesn't remember how many people he injected himself. However, he injected every single night that he worked. He injected and spiked bags of IV fluids that the rest of the nurses then were delivering to the patients. And then those tainted poisonous bags, we innocently gave them to the patients. And that is why they are saying it's probably closer to 400 or more that he actually murdered. It's a staggering, staggering amount. And One of the things that was so challenging for me is how people wanted to paint him as a mercy killer, that he was he was putting people out of their misery. And that was just wrong. He did not try to put people out of their misery. The medications that he chose were medications that could torture people, medications that could paralyze people so that they couldn't breathe and they would know it they would know that they were dying and no one could help them because they couldn't scream. Charles Cullen was a cold-blooded murderer and a brilliant, brilliant cold-blooded murderer. And 
within all of that, there still was a space inside of me. It wasn't about forgiveness. It was about, it was more about an understanding of how someone that didn't have proper mental health care and had such a traumatic childhood and upbringing, being misunderstood, being bullied, unfortunately, it can turn into something so, so horrific. And right now, that is what I am trying to explain to people is that his mental illness definitely caused him to do these things. That does not mean that we don't hold him accountable, but we can still show him compassion and some understanding that there was something so, so wrong about the way that he was treated and the way that he suffered from his mental illness alone and scared. So that's what I think of that. Did you ever have an interaction with him following that day, the restaurant and police station that day? Did you ever interact with him again? I saw him in prison when Charles Graber was working on his book. I visited him probably a couple of dozen times in prison and it was very emotional, very, very emotional. And yes, I still had compassion for him. I also was very cognizant of how manipulative he was and how much he still wanted to be seen as either the victim or a hero. And I needed to be very careful with the way that I interacted with him. Notwithstanding everything that you just described and have mentioned during the course of this conversation, your friendship, your compassion, all of it, what would be the answer to the question, why did you visit him? I visited him because I wanted answers. I wanted to know if he knowingly made me murder someone. I wanted to know if I had harmed someone. I wanted to know why. And those are questions that I'll never have answered. And I think also there was this sense of guilt that I had betrayed him so deeply and knowing that at some point I was his only lifeline to the real world and being deserted by someone regardless of what he did absolutely needed to be held accountable he's still human and he still has a soul in him and I still cared for him and I think that I wanted to release that guilt did he show any new side of him in those visits. You described the same victim or hero attempt, but was there an additional layer or side of the prism that he showed any vulnerability, any authenticity, any feelings that were different than you'd ever seen before from him? It's interesting that you say authenticity. I don't know if there was authenticity. I believe he was very skilled at pretending authenticity. I have often thought about who was he? Was he my friend Charlie, this sad, brilliant, kind person, and he just had a dark side? Or was he the murderer, that very dark, very angry, and murderous human was he that and pretended to be my friend which one was it and we'll never know we will never know i am looking at another one of the um, interviews that you've done where you mentioned the the new film that's out that tells this story you said watching the movie gave me permission to be proud of myself I showed up as a mom. I showed up as a nurse. I showed up as a friend. The only reason Charlie is not still murdering is because of my friendship with him. 
Yes. And it wasn't anger that put him behind bars. It wasn't anything dark and terrible. And it wasn't vengeance that put him behind bars. What put him behind bars was kindness, humanity, and compassion. And it was all of those things that led him to a confession. We'll be right back with more of this story. Now I wanted to ask you about what you're working on now. You, you devote your time to helping other healthcare workers facing trauma and fatigue and burnout. Can you share about most important patient? I would love to. I spent 20 years after everything that happened with Charlie trying to figure out how I could have befriended a serial killer. And I needed answers. I tried therapy. I was very scared to tell people that I was struggling with my mental health. Much of that is because it stays with us as a stigma in the medical field. And I couldn't share with anyone. So I silently suffered and went on this spiritual quest of understanding my own darkness. And I tried so many different modalities and many of them, not your everyday modalities. These were energy healings. I had a daily meditation practice. I learned yoga. I became a hypnotist, a Reiki master, an angel therapy healer. And I tried absolutely everything that I could imagine out there. I went to workshop after workshop after workshop, trying to understand myself. And within that, what I did was finally figure out that I had compassion for myself. I was using compassion for other people and not using it on myself. So I have designed these conferences for medical workers, healthcare workers, healthcare professionals, so that they can come for a workshop and be able to try out all of the modalities, at least some of the modalities that I was able to use to heal myself. And there will be one-on-one -on -one therapists there, debriefing specialists. There's going to be all of the what you would imagine as mental health help. But there will also be practices that you would imagine for your soul and for your spirit. And even fun metaphysical things like your Akashic records and palm readers and tarot card readers, because all of that falls in line with at least getting in touch with what's inside you, your own voice and being able to trust that. I did have a voice inside me that I was able to trust. And that's what brought, what has brought me here. And it's also what brought me to a serial killer being put behind bars. So these conferences are starting in June. I would absolutely love everyone to look at mostimportantpatient.com. And if this calls to you, if this feels like it aligns with you, then please come and join us because it really is life-changing. Can you share for those that would love to attend, how do they get in touch with you or how do they learn more? So you can go to amythegoodnurse.com or mostimportantpatient.com. And either way, you can, you can send me a message on either of those. And also on Instagram, I am Amy the Good Nurse. So send me a DM. I always, always answer my DMs. I want to close by extending the utmost gratitude to you, Amy, for you are really one of the most unique souls I've ever met in the depth of your compassion and the ability for you to see others with such um, such grace. I mean, it's really incredible. And the amount that you have gone through and forged through with such care and kindness and just a fastidious acknowledgement of others' feelings and the spaces that they occupy and, and their own stories. It's truly incredible. And I'm so honored to have had this time with you. 
and for at the end of the day for you saving countless lives. We know that potentially hundreds of lives were taken by this person, but we know with more certainty the hundreds of lives that were saved because of you. So is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Anything you'd like to close on? I would just like to say thank you all for showing up, showing up in your lives and showing up when no one is going to thank you. So keep showing up and just know that I am here. DM me. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.